Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to this first episode on the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, (laughs) there is a world in which we could just deal with this commandment in a single sentence, right? We could just say, well, look, adultery is bad because you are betraying your spouse if you commit adultery and that is obviously a bad thing to do. So don't do it. The end. Okay. But... The church is so wise in the way that she treats this commandment. She acknowledges two things. First of all, that in order to really understand why adultery is a sin, we first need to understand on a more kind of fundamental level what marriage actually is, right? What sex is, and even more fundamentally, what it is to be a man or a woman. And secondly... She acknowledges that the theology, the logic behind why adultery is a sin, also actually applies to all areas of human sexuality, right? Not just to adultery. So that's why this section of the Catechism on the Sixth Commandment covers the whole of what we call the theology of the body. So we are going to take a few episodes to go through this one, right? Because it is a massive area, the theology of the body, especially these days when there is so much that used to be just assumed knowledge that now actually needs to be kind of nutted out from the very beginning. But even though we're going to kind of take our time a little bit with this, this is still going to be very much a crash course in the theology of the body. So what I really recommend If you want to think about any of the things that that come up in these episodes more, I really recommend reading John Paul II's Theology of the Body. There's also a book called Theology of the Body in Simple Language, and that's really great. You can also check out the work of Christopher West, who is, as we all know, my uncle, (laughs) my other uncle being Kanye. (laughs) Christopher West does incredible work in this area, making theology of the body accessible and understandable to the everyday person. So I cannot recommend it highly enough, and I will put all those links in the show notes for you. Okay, so let's get started. Today, we are going to discuss those few words from Genesis that open this section of the Catechism. And those words are, male and female, he created them. Now, up until like maybe 10 or 20 years ago, that that would not have been a controversial statement to make, right? But of course, today, in many circles, it is. It is controversial. Now, something that I just want to say from the outset while I was preparing this episode, talking about gender and what it is to be a man or a woman, etc., I could feel my own emotions rising up in response to some of this stuff, even though I believe it. I believe that it's true, but there's also a part of me that sort of emotionally reacts and is like, oh, I, I kind of don't want to believe this. Like, I don't enjoy this. I don't like it, even though I do. But I also know and love, as many, many other people do, people whose lives don't conform to the church's teachings around, you know, gender. And I love those people and I want to support them. And it can be really hard to separate those feelings of love and compassion from my objective sense of what is true. 
So I just want to say that if you experience any of those feelings of pain or frustration as we go through this stuff, just know that I'm with you. Like I know that this can be really, really hard to just sit in. It's very countercultural, but we can look to Christ as our model in this. Christ shows us that compassion and love for others is not the same thing as sharing another person's worldview. We can disagree with someone's perception of reality and still deeply love and support that person as a person and as a child of God. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. No one is suggesting that the church's teaching on human sexuality requires us to reject people who don't conform to it. Okay, so we are going to just kind of step through this, beginning with this idea. Our bodies matter. Our bodies matter. Now, this is an idea that the secular world today seems to kind of simultaneously dismiss and affirm. So on the one hand, we have this kind of popular sense at the moment that our bodies don't really matter, right? Because my body is not who I am. It's just a vessel that I happen to be inhabiting at the moment. So I recently saw an interview with the actress Emma Thompson. She was on one of those like late night talk shows. It was so interesting the language she used. She was talking about body image and the importance of loving your body. And she was saying, she was like, this is your vessel. This is where you live. This is your house. There is absolutely no point in judging it. (laughs) I thought, wow, that is a really interesting choice of words. To say that my body is a vessel, it's a house that I inhabit, That's actually a philosophical position, but it's become so widely accepted that we don't even acknowledge or or realize that it's a philosophical position. We talk about it like it's just this assumed truth, right? That my body is just a vessel and that my, I don't know, my soul or my spirit, that's the true person. And you know that something is a popular idea when celebrities are saying it on late night talk shows, right? That's where all the safest things are said. (laughs) So on the one hand, we have this idea that the body doesn't matter because it isn't who I am. On the other hand, my body does matter, right? In fact, it really matters. In fact, it matters so much that if my body doesn't conform to my sense of self-identity, the way that I see myself, then I will change my body in order to match that self-identity. So to summarize, we could say that the popular idea at the moment is that the body does matter, but only as a kind of expression of of a sort of spiritual, psychological sense of self. So we can return to that idea that the body is like a house that I live in. It expresses things about who I am. But if my personality and interests and tastes change, I can redecorate it or I can even completely renovate it to reflect my sense of self. Now, in contrast to these ideas, the Catholic Church teaches that the body isn't just a vessel. It isn't just a house that I live in. My body is actually me. We humans are both body and soul. The two are totally integrated. I'm not separate from my body. So Christopher West gives this example of like, if someone punched you in the face and broke your jaw, you wouldn't take them to court for property damage. You would take them to court for personal assault, right? Because the body is you. And this is why, you know, as human beings, when we are in relationships with each other, we show intimacy and affection through physical touch, right? Physical 
physical intimacy is a way for two human persons to encounter each other. It's not just their vessels kind of smashing up against each other. My body is me. So why is this an important distinction? The body as a vessel versus the body as me. It's important because, and here we go back to what we were discussing in the fifth commandment about premises, right? This is one of the fundamental ideas that will help us to answer one of the most pressing questions of our time, which is, what is a man or a woman, right? What is it to be a male or a female person? So you might remember a few times in this podcast, we've talked about two different ways of understanding reality. One is that things are what they are. And the other is that things are what we call them. Now, when it comes to sex and gender, we can actually introduce a third option, which is that things are how they behave, right? And this is an option that, you know, many people kind of implicitly affirmed at certain points in history, this idea that men and women are how they behave. So we see this in the idea that, you know, real men are strong and assertive and unemotional, that they love trucks and trains and the color blue. And if you don't have those attributes, then you are not a real man. And then in contrast, women are all submissive and they're all delicate and they all wear dresses and skirts and they like making sandwiches and the color pink. And if you don't have those attributes, then you're not a real woman. Now, this is an idea that most people these days would agree is both unhelpful and untrue. (laughs) Most people would agree that your behaviors don't actually define who you are in terms of gender. There are plenty of women who are assertive and strong and plenty of men who are in touch with their emotions. And that's fantastic, right? Okay, so we can set aside that idea that behaviors are a defining characteristic of men and women. So then we can turn to the second option, that things are what we call them. And this is an idea that is more and more accepted in the secular Western world. And it comes again out of that idea that I'm not my body, right? So I can have an identity that doesn't depend on my biology or my behaviors. If I feel myself to be a woman or to be a man, then that is ultimately what makes me a woman or a man. Now, the problem with this position is that it doesn't adequately answer that question, what is a man or what is a woman, right? So imagine that a child came up to you and said, what is a tree? And you said to that child, well, a tree is something that we call a tree, or it's something that feels itself to be a tree. (laughs) The child would probably rightly be very confused because you haven't actually told them anything. You might as well say that, you know, a plinky plonk is something that we call a plinky plonk. (laughs) You still haven't told me what a plinky plonk is. (laughs) And we kind of implicitly know this, right, that all things that exist have attributes. Even non-material things like love or fear or longing, they have attributes that we can describe. So then we return to this question, what are the attributes of a man or a woman? And if we don't want to rely on biology or on behaviors to define what a man or a woman is, we're really not left with much, right? Maybe gender is a kind of feeling or a knowledge, you know, I I feel or I know that I am a woman. But even then, we arrive back at a kind of dead end because what what is that feeling that we're referring to? What does it feel like to be a woman? Because we know that not all women feel the same way. How do I know that this feeling that I have is the feeling of being a woman and not of being something else? 
And again, if I just know that I'm a woman, well, what do I mean by woman in that context? So without some kind of material reality to attach themselves to, those words, man and woman, kind of become devoid of meaning. And what kind of ends up happening with this identity first definition of gender is that we inevitably do actually start falling back on behaviors and biology. So someone who identifies as a woman might change their name to a more typically feminine name. They might start to wear more typically quote unquote feminine clothing. They might take steps to change their biology so that their body resembles a female body. And what we can see here is a kind of implicit acknowledgement of the fact that it's not enough to just identify yourself as something in order to be that thing. There has to be some material reality that we are referring to when we say man or woman. Now, if you want to think more about this, there's a guy called Dr. Thomas Bogardus. He's a philosopher of gender and he's done some really interesting interviews on YouTube. And he also has a couple of papers on the philosophy of gender. I would really recommend checking him out if this is something you want to think more about. Okay, now let's consider that third option, that things are what they are. So according to this view, it's ultimately my biology that decides whether I am a man or a woman. So a combination of my DNA, my chromosomes, my hormones, my sexual organs, etc., etc. So in the very first moment of conception, the biological sex of the fetus is imprinted in its DNA. And then that is reflected in the way that the body grows and develops throughout our lives. Now, of course, one common objection to this argument is that in some rare cases, there are anomalies in a person's DNA or their biology. That means that we might not clearly fall into one category or another, male or female. However, if we think about it, this is something that occurs in any situation where we define what things are. So, for instance, I can define the attributes of a shrub and of a tree, and I can identify them as two different things. Now, there are situations where something might have kind of the attributes of both, and it's a little bit difficult to tell whether it's a shrub or a tree. But that doesn't mean that there is no longer any such thing as shrubs or trees, or that we need to find a brand new way of identifying trees that doesn't rely on their physical attributes, right? Trees are still trees and shrubs are still shrubs, even if in a very small minority of cases, they can be harder to categorize. And we can say the same thing about gender. Now, the great thing about this biology first approach to gender is that it doesn't leave out those other two factors, behaviors and identity, but it does put them in their right place. So we can see how our biology leads to certain behavioral tendencies in men and women. Men might tend to be physically stronger, and that might mean that they tend to be more you know, assertive, etc. Women are biologically built to carry children in their wombs and to breastfeed, right? And that might mean that they tend to have a different relationship to, say, nurturing children. But those behaviors don't have to dictate who we are. You know, it's easy to think of this biological definition of men and women as something quite restrictive and limiting, but actually it is incredibly freeing because it means that you can 
absolutely be a non-typical man or woman, right? You can be a man who is more sensitive and more emotional or a man who expresses his strength in different ways. Like maybe you're really quiet, but you've got principles or you're a woman who expresses that nurturing side by like coaching the local soccer team. You can absolutely be an assertive, nurturing woman who likes to play footy. (laughs) Your behaviors, according to this model, express, but they don't define your gender. And that is incredibly freeing. And then when it comes to identity, this idea that things are what they are doesn't deny the fact that not everyone feels an affinity with their biological sex. You might be biologically male, but maybe you don't identify with any of the kind of behavioral tendencies of your sex. Maybe you don't act like the other men around you, or maybe you don't feel comfortable in your body or you feel a sense of alienation from it. That is a very real and powerful feeling that we can totally acknowledge while simultaneously maintaining that those feelings don't decide or determine your gender. So someone who believes that our biology decides whether we're a man or a woman can at the same time have infinite respect and compassion and love and acceptance for someone who experiences gender dysphoria or body dysmorphia. The only difference there would be in the way that we might propose to respond to and remedy that situation. And this is the beautiful thing about the Catholic Church's teaching on human sexuality. So often, the secular world seems to be saying that my body is just incidental, right? It's just a vessel, or even that it's something that is getting in my way. It's something I need to fight against, that I need to change, right? The Catholic Church, on the other hand, is saying, no, you are wonderfully made. Your body is beautiful just the way that it is. The body is something to celebrate and love and accept. C.S. Lewis says that Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body. The Catechism in point 2333 says that everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept their sexual identity. And by sexual identity, here we mean our identity as man or woman, as revealed to us through our bodies. So my body, which is me, is good. And if I feel alienated from myself, I need to try to find ways to reintegrate my mind with my body, right, rather than rejecting my body. Now, two things to say here. First of all, as we said in the episode on abortion, none of this means that as Christians, we have any right to judge individuals who make the decision to change their bodies in response to the experience of gender dysphoria, right? We can maintain our belief in these truths while simultaneously deeply loving and accepting and showing compassion for people who are going through this experience. The second point to make is that, you know, when we say that it's important to learn to love and accept our bodies rather than rejecting them, 
I'm very aware that there is a risk there of sounding flippant. And I want to avoid kind of being like, yay, you just all you have to do is just accept that you're actually a boy or you're actually a girl and then everything will be fine. It's that easy. Woo-hoo. You know, it's like the equivalent of telling someone with clinical depression that they have nothing to be sad about and they should just try to be happier. Okay, we can totally acknowledge that it is not always just as simple as just embracing your biological reality. That can be a really, really difficult thing to try to do. However, whatever the specific kind of clinical steps are and however difficult the process might be, in the same way that for someone with depression, our ultimate aim should be to help them to experience joy and happiness again, rather than affirming their, their you know, sense of reality that everything is you know, dark and horrible. Our aim for someone experiencing gender dysphoria should ultimately be to help them to experience the joy and the beauty of being the man or the woman that God made them as. And this is the thing, right, that being male or female, these are beautiful, joyful, incredible realities. This is something that I often talk even to my secular friends about, right? That as a society, we so often we've had this focus on what it isn't to be a man or a woman. We've talked so much about the negative effects of taking those gendered cliches too far and ending up with toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. But what the church offers us is a joyful rediscovery of the positive aspects of what it is to be a woman or to be a man. And this is something that is so needed in the world today. So let's just talk a little bit about what it means to be made male and female and why these are such beautiful realities. So one thing that the church talks about is the fact that man and woman are made equal but different. In his Theology of the Body, Pope John Paul II talks about how in the second chapter of Genesis, Adam is only referred to as specifically male after the creation of the female, after the creation of Eve. So at the start of the second chapter, Adam is alone in creation, right? He, he goes through and names all of God's creatures, but there is no suitable helpmate found for him. And then he falls asleep and God creates Eve from his rib. I think it might be Jason Evert who talks about this, about how Eve is created not from Adam's head because she's above him or from his feet because she's beneath him, but from his side because she is his equal. This is the way that it's put in the theology of the body in simple language. It says, man falls into a deep sleep in order to find a being like himself. He wakes up male and female. He says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So what we see here is that the fullness of humanity is expressed in both the male and the female, that there's this kind of incompleteness until the human person wakes up man and woman. Edith Stein has this quote that I think I might have used before because I absolutely love it, where she says, I am convinced that the species humanity embraces the double species man and woman. The essence of the complete human being is characterized by this duality. John Paul II says something similar. He says, knowledge of man, as in the human person, 
passes through masculinity and femininity. These are, as it were, two incarnations of the same metaphysical solitude before God and the world. They are the two ways of being a body which complete each other. So there are a couple of things that we can draw from this. One is this sense of the radical equality between men and women, the sense that the fullness of humanity made in the image and likeness of God requires both the male and the female. So point 2334 of the Catechism says, in creating men male and female, God gives man and woman an equal personal dignity. And then in Gaudium et Spes, it says, man is a person, man and woman, equally so, since both were created in the image and likeness of the personal God. So it's not like Adam was the boss dog and then God you know, had to create Eve because Adam needed someone small and meek to do his washing for him, right? Both are equal in dignity and importance in the eyes of God. Both reflect God back to himself. But the second thing that we can draw from this is that man and woman, although they are equal in dignity, are not exactly the same as each other. So point 2335 of the Catechism says that each of the two sexes is an image of the power and tenderness of God in a different way. So male and female reflects different aspects of God's power and his love, but neither is greater than the other. And here again, we see that positive, joyful aspect of those behavioral tendencies that arise out of our biology, that being strong or nurturing, which are both qualities that are manifested differently in men and women, they are different manifestations or reflections of the love and power of God. You know, I think sometimes we don't like to talk about the differences between men and women. And I think at times that's because of a kind of internalized sexism, really. Like we assume that when we say that women are different from men, what we're actually saying is that women are worse than men. And what ends up happening is that we actually kind of implicitly affirm the idea that in order to be taken seriously, women need to become men. They need to be indistinguishable from men. And that actually reinforces the idea that being a man is better than being a woman. One of the greatest, most freeing discoveries that I've made in the last few years of my 20s is the realization of my own femininity. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I've realized that I like wearing long floral dresses. I mean, I kind of did that in my early 20s and it didn't make me feel like more of a woman. Instead, what I've discovered is that, you know, for instance, I love inviting a friend over for dinner and making them really feel at home and cooking them a really nice meal and sitting and talking through their deepest feelings and emotions for four hours, right? There is an inherent talent that I have as a woman for nurturing the people that I love. And it's in discovering that talent that I feel like I've discovered on a deeper level what it is to be feminine. And for another woman, that nurturing quality might look completely different. But there's a a kind of skill there that comes out of my biological capacity for motherhood that is beautiful and good and should be celebrated. And that, by the way, is not to say that a man can't cook a nice meal and talk about his feelings. In fact, he can and should do those things. However, very often that is a skill that a man will learn and discover through his experience of femininity. And this leads us to our final question, which is, why is it necessary for men and women to be made equal but different? 
Like, let's think about it. God could very easily have made just one kind of human person who contains all of these qualities and just creates new human beings on its own by splitting itself like an amoeba, right? God could have done that, but he didn't. He made us man and woman different but equal. Why? Well, point 2335 of the Catechism says that The union of man and woman in marriage is a way of imitating in the flesh the creator's generosity and fecundity. Therefore, a man leaves his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. So let's unpack that quote. There are a couple of things in there. First is the idea that difference can lead to unity. So I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she was telling me about how she'd been on a date the night before. And I was like, oh, how, how was it? How did it go? And she was like, yeah, I mean, it was good. He was really nice. But to be perfectly honest, he was kind of a little bit too similar to me. Like I felt like I was on a date with myself. <laughs> and she was like, I don't know. There's, I was looking at him and I was like, there's kind of nothing in you that I don't already contain within myself, right? And I think that's a really good example of the way that sameness can lead to disunity, to isolation. And difference can lead to unity. Now, because of original sin, the differences between men and women have so often been a source of division and disunity. But here we can see that God's original plan was for that difference to be a source of unity, that we would connect with each other and learn from each other and grow you know, in sanctity and goodness through our differences. John Paul II says that the body, through its own masculinity or femininity, helps both to find themselves in communion of persons. And the second idea that follows on from this is that that union between persons is an incredible expression of love. And love is our ultimate vocation as human beings, to love one another. We've talked before about how love requires a lover and a beloved who are united to each other. And this unity in the human person is achieved in a profound and a unique way through the sexual act between complementary male and female bodies that fit together like puzzle pieces, right? It's through that biological and, and behavioral and, and you know spiritual difference between men and women That union is created in that mutual self-giving that we call love. Point 2392 of the Catechism says that love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. And it's through the union of the male and female body in the sexual act that human beings reflect and learn in a profound way the, the love that, that we see between God the Father and God the Son, right? We experience and live out that vocation to love and be loved through our difference and through the union of those complementary bodies and persons. Okay, (laughs) well, that's all we have time for today. In the next episode, we're going to continue this discussion by talking more specifically about sex, about the profound goodness of the sexual act. Alrighty, (laughs) thank you for sticking with me. Um, I'm going to look forward to continuing this conversation soon. Have a fantastic fortnight and I will talk to you soon. Bye. (laughs) 